Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. This story breaking earlier today, parties in Ethiopia conflict agree to cease hostilities. The parties in the conflict in Ethiopia's northern region of Tigray have agreed to cease hostilities, a dramatic diplomatic breakthrough two years into a war that has killed thousands, displaced millions, and left hundreds uh, of thousands facing famine. We'll get into more detail uh, on this story later in the show. With 86% of votes tallied, Benjamin Netanyahu headed for decisive comeback victory. Near-complete results give Likud leaders bloc 65 seats, with far-right set to gain unprecedented sway. Landscape could change if Mertz, Balad cross threshold, but that's seen unlikely. For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He's a former CIA counterterrorism officer and a former senior investigator with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He became the sixth whistleblower indicted by the Obama administration under the Espionage Act, a law designed to punish spies. He served 23 months in prison as a result of his attempts to oppose the Bush administration's torture program. And he's the co-host of Sputnik's Political Misfits. He joins us now from Jerusalem, John Kiriakou. As always, John, welcome back. Thank you so much, Wilmer. Happy to be with you. So the Times of Israel reports as the ballots in the Knesset election were being tallied today, all signs are pointing to a resounding victory for opposition leader Benjamin Netanyahu and his block of right-wing, far-right, and religious parties a result that could end a political crisis that has seen five general elections held in under four years. Two things. One, referring to him as an opposition leader, can you you speak to to me? I, I don't know how that fits. And also, they're saying that this could end a political crisis that has seen five general elections in four years would a Netanyahu victory end the crisis or would it merely, as we see in happening in Ethiopia, be a cessation of hostilities for a period of time? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And I, I think that you're right. I, I see it more as a cessation of hostilities. But we should point out that by Israeli standards, 65 seats in the 120 seat Knesset is a significant uh, majority. Mm-hmm. Right. He's got four seats to spare. What what uh, Netanyahu did that Yair Lapid failed to do was that he cultivated support among the ultra orthodox and um, and far right wing uh, parties, the Zionist parties. Yair Lapid should have been cultivating support on behalf of the left of center parties, especially labor and merits and, and even Balad, one of the Arab parties. It's a secular uh, Arab party. He didn't do that. He focused instead on his own uh, party, seeing the race as as uh, a referendum between Netanyahu and his slightly barely left of center uh, coalition. 
but that just didn't work out. Um, but 65 seats, and, and we should also point out that they haven't finished counting the vote yet. At midday, they were at 85%. So Netanyahu could end up with 62. He could end up with 66. Either way, he's got enough to come back. Now, if he can just hold the uh, the support of these Zionist and ultra-Orthodox parties, he could serve out a full a full term. He's certainly done it in the past. Well, John, I think he's last I heard he had some problems with corruption. However, I do know when he went out of office, that's to put it mildly, he was working to basically, I mean, this was really gangster kind of stuff. You know, basically he was working to use to get back to be prime uh, in, in the prime ministership so that he could use his power to kill the investigations against him. Is that still going on? What do you know about that? Yes, that's the conventional wisdom. Israel has this really strange uh, law that says that the attorney general is the person responsible for issuing these indictments, okay? So both Benjamin Netanyahu and his wife have been indicted for corruption. If Netanyahu were to fire the attorney general, those charges go away with the attorney general. Now, he has repeatedly promised on the campaign trail that he wouldn't do that. <laughs> he says he's innocent. He's perfectly happy to go to trial and prove his innocence. But, you know, our friends like Miko Pellet say that's nonsense, that he'll likely fire the attorney general and then not look back. Elaborate a little bit on uh, Yair Lapid and what's being reported as his um, coalition slamming him for his campaign, because it, it, again, when you read these stories, they make it sound as though Lapid and Netanyahu are the difference between the traditional Republican and, and Democrat, that they're, that they're opposite ends of the spectrum, when really they're, they're, if not two wings on the same bird, the same wing on the same <laughs> bird. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's personality-based, not politically-based. Mm -hmm. You know, just like in the United States, Wilmer, people here in Israel get caught up in this whole left versus right thing, when in fact it's not left versus right. It's right versus Ultra more right, more right yeah. farther right, right. you know? Mm -hmm. um, one, of the, one of the things that Lapid is being criticized for today, and you just alluded to it a moment ago, is the fact that when it was clear that Lapid's party was going to be the largest party that would make up the the left of center. Let's just use that phrase for for fun. The left of center block. He didn't do what Netanyahu has done. What Netanyahu has done is when it was clear that Likud was going to win, he would encourage Likud voters to instead of voting for Likud, vote for other right-wing parties. That would make the coalition stronger mm -hmm. and would allow other you know, right-wing parties to inflate their numbers in the Knesset. So what Lapid didn't do was to urge his voters to vote for Meretz, for example, which for the first time in, in 35 years is not going to be represented in parliament. They they fell just short of the uh, the 3.25 percent threshold. He didn't ask Arabs to turn out and vote uh, for Balad, the secular left of center Arab party. He he didn't ask people to vote for Labor. Now, labor Labor governed 
Israel for decades. And now they're looking at four to six seats in the Knesset. They're finished. So he believed for whatever reason, I think it was just hubris to tell you the truth, that he he could be the party leader to win more seats than Likud's party. And that's just not the way it turned out. Well, let me ask you this, John. Lately, um, the I mean, in the past three or four days, I think Israel's gone through 12 prime ministers. Now, I'm being facetious with like with it, but you get my point. That, five days. Exactly. It was five every, days and every, 13 prime ministers. Exactly. Every couple of months, I mean, they got, you know, the, they're getting the Liz Trust business going on here. What oh, yeah. is to make us believe that Benjamin Netanyahu is going to last any longer than, well, Benjamin Netanyahu before that, but then the guy after him, and that there ain't going to be another guy in another couple months, they'll be back in crisis voting for some schmuck again. Yeah, you know, that's really that's really the heart of the issue here. Greece used to have a, a similar political situation where you had just so many parties all represented in, in parliament and that you couldn't get a working majority and there was like a 3% threshold to get into the Greek parliament. And what the Greeks did is they enacted, they enacted um, electoral reform where now you need 5% to get into parliament and – Whatever party comes in first in in the electoral horse race gets an extra 50 seats. So that way now, Greece has stable governments. It doesn't need to form coalitions, and it's much, much easier to govern. When I – I'm a dual U.S. Greek citizen, so I went to Greece in July of, of 2019 to vote. It was the first time I had voted in a Greek election, and I was shocked when they handed me the voting packet to see that there were 61 different political parties. I could choose from 61 parties. Well, only five of them made it into parliament. And the the conservatives won an enormous working majority. Israel could do that, but they've elected not to. This This is the system that they've given themselves. And you and I both know that it's crazy to have five elections in the last three and a half years. But uh, they seem to be okay with it. Now, that may that may change as more and more, quote unquote, mainstream parties sort of fall by the wayside and are overtaken by these extremist parties and and Zionist parties and ultra orthodox parties. Um, There's just no room anymore for secularism here. And I'm wondering when people are going to finally put their foot down. Is is part of the issue that, again, Lapid. And Netanyahu, they're both hands on the same body. So it's a personality contest, not a policy contest. So the government functions, the trash gets picked up, the Palestinians still get oppressed. So Israelis are happy. Um, and again, it's, it's, a, it's a personality fight at the top, but that doesn't impact the daily lives of Israelis. I think that's exactly right. I think it is personality driven. And I think that the the only issue on which all Israelis agree is the Palestinians. They hate the Palestinians. They want to crush the Palestinians. Uh, They're willing to do practically anything to do that. And um, there's really not much daylight between Netanyahu and Lapid. So it comes down to personality. And all the people that I talk to think tank uh, people, mm-hmm. uh, one member of the Knesset uh, from the Blue and White Party, uh, a professor at the University of Tel Aviv. Everybody told me the same thing. 
it all boils down to whether you can stand to look at Benjamin Netanyahu's face for the four years <laughs> or you can't <laughs> because he's the only one that can really smash the Palestinians. And I think that's what we saw yesterday. And to that point, officers seriously wounded in West Bank car ramming, attacker shot dead. An officer in the IDF was seriously wounded today, this morning, in a car ramming attack in the West at a West Bank checkpoint. There seems to be an increase in Palestinian resistance and armed resistance to Israeli oppression. Uh, your thoughts on this issue and the broader context? We have just one minute. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think that in this recent Lapid government, which had um, Arabs as as ministers and as uh, members of the coalition, I think a lot of Palestinians thought that perhaps this was the beginning of what might turn into a, a breakthrough. And in fact, uh, they have nothing to show for for their cooperation with the Lapid government. The, the settlements continue unabated. Violence is actually up. There are more Palestinian deaths than there have been in years. And so most of them just sat home and didn't vote. I think things are just getting worse. John Kiriakou, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you joining us from Jerusalem, and we look forward to having you back. Pleasure's mine. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Lula's speech to the world, Brazil is back. In his acceptance speech, the new president-elect of Brazil, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, told the world that his country is back. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's the co-host of Fault Lines and joins us from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, Jamaral Thomas. Jamaral, welcome back. What is happening, guys? You guys doing all right? Well, yeah, we, what, we're asking you what's happening. Uh, the leader of the Workers' Party said that he'll fight for a new global system of governance, for the inclusion of more nations in the Security Council of the United Nations, as well as put an end to the UN veto system. And this while I'm reading stories that uh, there are backers of Bolsonaro that are saying, come on, man, we got to have a coup. So I know we talked about this yesterday and said that from a judicial perspective, you know, Bolsonaro's done. But when you read reports saying, no, his folks are saying we need a coup, uh, help us balance uh, Lula saying Brazil is back and Bolsonaro's people saying, dude, we need a coup. Help us out, Jamal. Yeah, those people are few and far between on the positive side. Okay. There's that woman, what is her name? Zambelli, the one that chased the black man guy with a gun. <laughs> right. Got told the guy to get on the ground after that argument. Yeah, she's screaming for a coup. And you have some of these truckers that are screaming for a coup. And some of the truckers are even went out and said, we're going to go to the military in order to try to get the military to help because they're backing Bolsonaro. Good luck with that. Bolsonaro at this point, like I said yesterday, before he said a word, he was politically isolated. Not only 
did all of the world leaders basically come out, give it their accolades and everything else, making a point this was a free and fair election. But even behind the scenes, many of the people who were backers of his was trying to get him to basically to concede. And like I said, many of the people who were backing Bolsonaro um, vociferously even came out and said, oh, OK, we're going to accept Lula. We're going to be, you know, um, righteous opposition and everything else. But all things being equal, we will accept the election results. Bolsonaro speech was super interesting to me. He made a point. There are a few parts of this that I, I love the speech, and I don't say that as a positive. He says um, it was a, about a two minute speech. Very quick. Just came in. He had his ministers. He had allies with him. All of these people basically around the mic. He gives a quick two minute speech. He says, quote, I'll continue to follow the Constitution. It's an honor to being the leader of millions of Brazilians. He defended his record, basically saying he's not a fascist or anti-democratic. And he pushed, um, made the point of saying that he worked during the pandemic and basically on the consequences of the Ukrainian war. Now, the pandemic stuff. You had, what, 700 million, 700,000 people die in Brazil. Brazil had the second highest death toll, second only to the United States with over a million. In the Health and Human Services report, I think I mentioned this the other day, where they were talking about combating malign actors. And they basically bragged that they were able to try to get Brazil to not use the Sputnik V vaccine. 700,000 people in this country dropped dead. It's a country of 200,000. And the idea that you were you know, in your speech, oh, we fought the pandemic and all this other stuff. Nonsense. He also noted that, quote, our robust representation in Congress shows the strength of our values, God, nation, family, and freedom. Those such expansive emancipatory words. I have no idea what those words mean. And all things but equal, those words are just felt sense. It's this word is a feeling word. It just feels good to say freedom. You know, like the guy who was basically, um, what is it, Wallace, who was basically killed by the Brits screaming it aloud. These are words that are basically used for the entire point of getting jarring up emotions. It's like covering yourself in the Brazilian flag saying, you know, I believe in freedom. Anybody can say that, whether it's a Republican, a Democrat, a communist or anything else. All of them use this notion of freedom as a somewhat of a touchstone. These words mean absolutely nothing. Regarding the protesters, he makes the point of saying, quote, peaceful protests will always be welcome, but our means cannot be those of the left, which always harm people, invading property and preventing the right to live, unquote. Mm. Mm. Now, keep in mind, mm -hmm. those truckers are choking off the country itself. Now, the cops apparently have been able to get rid of some of the blockades. I've seen video footage of them using water cannons, in some cases, um, uh, what is the stuff, smoke grenades or whatever, those things that burn the eyes and everything else. Um, but apparently, still a few of those things exist, even though they haven't necessarily been reporting about it today. And so the idea that you are invading property and preventing the right to live. Gas was basically being blocked. Some of the gas stations lost like 90% of um of gas. Some you had long lines for people because they couldn't necessarily get the fuel at various locations because of the blockages. Food was blocked. There were concerns that the store shelves were basically going to go empty if those truckers basically kept this up. And even people who needed medical treatment or dialysis weren't able to get there because of the blockages themselves. This idea of right to live, even vaccines were blocked in some situations of trying to get to point B to baby to um, make the vaccines. So, you know, spare me this whole right to live stuff in your speech as your people basically continue to block all of these exit points. Now, to be fair to the cops, apparently they have gotten rid of some of those. And in regarding the cops, what's his name? Right here. The public prosecutor office opened an election fraud investigation against National Highway Police Director Silvini Vasquez. Now, Silvini Vasquez is the head of the federal um, highway patrol. He is the one 
that was responsible for, you know, basically ignoring the electoral court, the Supreme Electoral Court, Alexander de Morris, who basically said, don't do that. He did it anyway. And so they called him in, read him the riot act, threatened him with $20,000 an hour if he didn't necessarily comply. The cops in the highway patrol, in some cases, especially on social media, was working with the protesters as opposed to getting rid of the protesters. Now, I'm not saying this was all of them, but this was definitely some of them because, again, these guys were basically in the Bolsonaro camp. Um, they were another threat that you will be fined or, for that matter, put in prison if you don't do your job. Now, they got to the point where they said that they weren't necessarily doing their job. The Supreme Court co-signed Alexander Morales, Alexander Morris, basically saying, yeah, you're right. We're going to back you up on this. And even went as far as saying that the cops or the highway patrol by omission and inertia wasn't necessarily responding to the commands of the court. And they ordered state police to basically go in and try to get rid of the protesters. So some of the governors activated the various state police, Sao Paulo specifically, that I'm thinking of, um, to get them out. Tear gas, water cannons, whatever they needed in order to get those people out of the way or those truckers out of the way. So Bolsonaro didn't necessarily concede. However, he did concede, and all things been equal. Well, I'm not going to say that. He didn't concede. He didn't even mention Lula in the speech. But when he had a conversation with the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court came out and made the point of saying that in this two-hour conversation right here, in a private meeting with the Supreme Court, Justice Louise Edson Fashion said the conservative leader had, quote, said, it's over, so let's look ahead. Now, they also said in a subsequent statement that the cops source said the justices told Bolsonaro during the, quote, cordial and respectful meeting, unquote, that it's important that he recognize the election results as well as the Brazilian people's right to movement. According to two justices that were part of the meeting, they said, quote, it cleared the air without a doubt. It seems to turn a page, unquote. One of them made the point of saying, quote, the message was game over, unquote. Another one said, quote, he didn't criticize the electoral system or the courts, unquote. So those people can be out there all they want. And from the standpoint of the people screaming coup and everything else, well, their leader has basically called it quits. Now, the reason I think he called it quits had to do with his political, let's say, viability. If you set yourself on fire here where you're politically isolated, will you get the opportunity to basically run again in another four or five years? And the answer would be no. So basically, Bolsonaroism, everything else, his intent is I'm going to remain a viable political force in this country from the standpoint of the right, and I'm going to take this loss now with the idea of potentially coming in later. So, yeah, those people can cry coup all they want. I would just say this to Lula, and I know he listens to us every day, that with the state police doing what they're doing and the truckers doing what they're doing, he might want to keep tabs on Victoria Newland, And if she... If he gets the word that she has come to Brazil with cookies, with cookies, he might he might want to <laughs> go ahead, especially ginger you should snacks. Not allow that woman that lunatic into the country. Yeah, right. don't allow that lunatic into the country. I mean, because look, this the thing is, Biden came out very early and made the point of saying this was a free and fair election. Mm -hmm. But keep in mind, Lula is talking about a pan South American or um, let's say Latin currency. Ooh. He's talking about already make connections with Maduro. He's already most likely he's probably going to make relations with Cuba. And so and putting Biden an end to the U.N. veto system is screaming, you know, the election is fraught. So on some level, Biden can't turn around and say or give any accolades to Bolsonaro on this point. But what happens behind the scenes is the question, right? Where That's is Victoria Newland? Especially if he's know. talking about, you know, talking about these close interlinks between South America, even BRICS. 
he even mentioned that, mm-hmm. basically talking about renewing ties in that sense of the word. So, yeah, I mean, look, from my point of view, the United States and Europe has jumped the shark. And they've jumped the shark in a way that allowed other countries to create a secondary economic order that is sick and tired of the hegemonic control that the West basically has. And considering that they now have put themselves in a position where one of the main allies of the United States, Europe, is taking it in the teeth. They basically slit their wrists. Well, Lula is going to be head of this major powerhouse, 200 million people in this country, a major economic powerhouse working with Africa, I'm sorry, South Africa, Russia, and China, and in India. So this is what, half the globe? And he is a major part of creating this organization and working in the context of this organization. Yeah, he's going to be an international political force. Whether he can get that stuff done in the divided Congress or not is secondary to the point that as president, he's going to have powers to be able to do that stuff. So I am excited with him being in that office. Um, and I'm very curious to see what it means in practice in regards to the international relations standpoint. I think also um, his relationship with Maduro. You know, we had Colombia, which was a U.S. puppet government fall. And immediately I understand their trade, which is much of nothing, but it has gone up like 95 percent now that they've got their border open between, I mean, not completely open, but, you know, uh, uh, between Colombia and Venezuela going. Now, on the other side, you've got, what, the seventh largest, fifth most populous country in the world now doing business with Venezuela. It looks like the U.S.'s plan to take uh, Maduro out once and for all has flopped and Juan Guaido is done based on this election, I think is the end. We got about two, well, we got two and a half minutes. Your thoughts? Agreed. Thousand percent agree. I mean, the Juan Guaido thing is fascinating. And I, I kept thinking to myself, well, why did they put a knife in Juan Guaido? I think the reason is most of oil. They need oil. Any relationship that they need to make with Venezuela, the reality of it is how are you going to get that oil from Juan Guaido? <laughs> guy's just a puppet, right? Well, it was a revolution, and nobody basically came out. He got a dog and a cat and some random guy that might have came out with him. No, you, you're absolutely right. From the standpoint of the relationship that's taking place between um, these countries, it's clearly it's going to flourish. Clearly. And the issue with Juan Guaido, look, he was a puppet from the get-go. And this idea that Maduro wasn't going to be part of this is nonsense. One of the interesting things that I want to mention real quick, Venezuela, they tried to kill Maduro at one point, tried to whack the guy. And on top of that, you had Obama coming in saying, you know, he was a clear security threat. How? Nobody even asks how. They just say, okay, Obama said he's a security threat. He's a security threat. But all things been equal, Maduro withstood all of the pressure that was put on from the various U.S. institutions to try to get rid of him. And he is still there. And now he is there with all of these left-wing governments that are basically taking control of South America that is willing to make deals and work with them in tandem, including um, Gustavo Petro in Colombia. And so – Whatever plans mm-hmm. the U.S. had to isolate these guys is basically over with at this point. Because they couldn't get the people in Venezuela to turn on Maduro. That's because right. The, and even even though there were people, there were anti-Maduro people in Venezuela, they were Chavistas. And so it didn't matter to the They were looking at it from the outside saying, we're not going to let the colonists come in here and tell us, Who's going to run our country? Even if we don't like the guy, he's our guy, and we're going to stick with him 
We got thirty. We got fifteen and, seconds. And, and and say this. And it was bigger than Maduro to them. I was in Venezuela, and they said, "We will fight for our democracy." To them, it was, "You're not going to impose the demo- or anything on us. We chose him, and we'll we'll choose our leader, and we'll fight for it." They clearly said that. Jamaro Thomas, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. Stay safe. Talk to you soon. Thanks, man. Have a good one, guys. You too. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Newsweek reports President Putin says, quote, necessary conditions, end quote, may arise for Ukraine negotiation. He says that this could arise and spur negotiations to end the war in Ukraine. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an American citizen living in Crimea, Regis Tremblay. Regis, welcome back. Well, thank you. It's always a pleasure. It is reported that President Putin said on Monday that it would be possible to restart stalled peace talks between the nations, but expressed frustration that Ukraine was, quote, refusing to discuss anything, end quote, with Russia after Moscow's recent suspension of a deal to allow the exporting of grain from Ukrainian ports. Uh, What is your insight into this, Regis Tremblay? Well, I have a couple of things to say about that. First of all, uh, Russia knows, and they've made it very clear, President Putin and Sergei Lavrov, it is useless talking to Ukraine because it is the United States that is really speaking. Now, Another point I want to make is that Zelensky has insisted that no talks will occur until Putin is gone, and he passed, got legislation passed to make that impossible, peace talks, until Putin is gone. Not likely Putin's going to be gone anytime soon. Um, The other thing that I would like to mention is that Russia is in no hurry. Um, Russia right now is holding all of the cards. Uh, Russia uh, has all of this winter and even further uh, to wait this out because Ukraine is badly, badly losing this conflict. So that's the take here. This is what people here Uh, those that are paying attention to this kind of thing understand and believe that there is no point in talking to Ukraine that this will end with the complete capitulation on the battlefield, not only of Ukraine, but the United States and NATO. You know, Regis, I, I agree with you. Here's what I think. The 
Um, the Russians have a number of allies, and I think they know they've written off, written off the U.S., they've written off the West, they know where they're coming from. And they know that this isn't completely about Russia and Ukraine. It's about Russia and Ukraine. It's about China. It's about any other country that wants to arise. The U.S. wants to be remain the world's hegemon. But I think they have to maintain the moral position and the moral high ground, particularly with their allies, to say, look, these people won't negotiate. But we always have to maintain the position. Look, we're open for peace. We're willing to negotiate. If you're going to give us a good deal, we'll do a deal. So I think it's a moral position, even though they know their enemy won't, I mean, adversary, whatever you want to call, won't necessarily take up on that. What do you think? I absolutely agree with you. Anybody that goes back over the last number of years, Russia has taken the high moral ground. Russia has always wanted negotiations. Russia has always wanted a, a peace agreement, uh, not, a, not just a peace agreement with this Ukraine, but its own security agreements in the pan-European scenario. Russia has maintained this moral high ground for a number of years. And I would dare to say, since President Putin came into power in 2020, you're absolutely right. I would, I would, to use the the, the grammar school playground analogy, uh, I would equate this to Putin's just trying to get Ukraine to say uncle, and and from all indications, Zelensky would love to, but the United States won't let him, and so he's not getting off of Ukraine's chest until until they they cry uncle. And there's another story. Russia considers further steps over allegation that the U.K. was behind Nord Stream blasts. The Kremlin said yesterday that Russia was considering, quote unquote, further steps to take in response to Britain's alleged role in the attacks on the Nord Stream natural gas pipelines. Such actions cannot be put aside. Of course, we will think about future steps. It definitely cannot be left like this, according to Dmitry Peskov your thoughts, not only about this particular point, but I always find it interesting the manner in which these messages are communicated by Russia. They're not saying what they're going to do, but they're basically saying, trust me, we're going to handle this. Regis. Yeah, exactly. Um, Here's what's known. Uh, And Russia has known this. They take note of everything. Uh, when the pipeline was blown up, uh, Tony Blinken said, quote, the explosion provides a tremendous opportunity to wean Europe off Russian gas. End of quote. Biden also pledged to bring an end to Nord Stream 2. So here you have Kui Bono. Who benefits? Obviously, the United States. Now, the other thing that Russia knows is that one minute after the pipeline blast, Liz Trust, in a telephone message on her private phone, totally insane, told Tony Blinken, it's done. Now, Russia knows this. Russia also knows that it was the UK that was involved in blowing up one of the lanes of the Crimean bridge at Kerch. Russia also knows that it was the UK, with the help of Canada even, that was responsible for the 
naval and aerial attacks in Sevastopol Harbor just this last Sunday. They know that. They have the proof. And so when, when Russia talks about further steps, you're exactly right. Nobody knows what Russia is going to do. But Putin and Peskov, his spokesperson, says we will determine what to do when we are ready to do it. And this, I think, has been Russia's strategy every time they're threatened. You know, Regis, sometimes the most powerful action you can take is the most subtle, and sometimes it's none. Here's what I think. They saw what happened, and they waited for a little bit until things started to cool off a little bit, and they released two words. It's done. Their act is to say, hey, guys, uh, in case you were wondering, yeah, they blew up your pipeline, and here's the evidence so everybody knows it, and then you just walk away and leave them stew and fight amongst each other. I don't think Russia has to. I think it's done putting that out there. Now the U.K. doesn't have to deal with Russia. They got to deal with Germany, and the poison pill that they planted between Russia and Germany is going to handle the situation in the long run. What do you think, Regis? Well, let the temperature drop another five or six degrees uh, uh, centigrade, and they'll remember those. The two stew words. is really going to get cold. Yeah, what do you <laughs> Go think, ahead, Regis? I really appreciate that analysis. I, I think you're right on. And by the way, um, the temperature in Kiev yesterday was 35 degrees Fahrenheit. It's getting colder and colder by the day. So Russia doesn't, I agree with you, Russia doesn't have to do anything except put it out there for the public, for the larger world community, make it official with the United Nations, and continue to walk the moral high ground. This is what I think is actually happening, and I think your analysis and your assessment is absolutely correct. There's another element to this, I believe, that needs to be considered, and that is the way that Russia thinks, the way that China thinks. They're always, you know, they operate on five-year, 10-year, 15-year plans. And and so they're looking very long-term. I, I, I know a lot of folks that, well, why didn't Russia go in heavier earlier? Well, I think part of it had to do with President Putin was thinking about the economic impact that those types of actions would have on the Russian economy. And he didn't want to damage his economy. When you look at what the United States was doing in Taiwan, China didn't 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 directly respond. They sent missiles over the island of Taiwan into the sea, sending the message, y'all want to bring some aircraft carriers in here, we'll send them to the bottom of the ocean. So there seems to be a much longer worldview perspective that the United States just doesn't understand. Well, this is what I would like to add to that. Um, and I would like to address just Russia now and what President Putin has been championing alone. China is not the champion and the leader in this. President Putin's vision for a new world order that is a multipolar world based on the respect and the sovereignty of all nations, based on international strict observance of international law, the principles of the UN Charter, and the belief in the peace and prosperity 
of all based on mutual cooperation. Putin has just repeated this. Mm -hmm. He's repeated it consistently in the last several days and weeks. And this is Russia's long-term vision. What is happening, my friends, is Russia, China, uh, the, the Asian Union, the BRICS nations are beginning to form um, not an alliance, but a partnership. Um, they're beginning to trade in their own currencies. They are deliberately moving away from the United States petrodollar as the world standard. This is the larger, what I believe, economic war that is going to take down the empire. And this is the very long-term view, as you mentioned, of Russia. China, being a very capitalist country, and they are capitalists with this huge communist control system, but they are depending on the United States in every single way. It's a, their largest ex export uh, customer. And so China is playing, I think, a very diplomatic role and in this case, allowing Russia to take the lead. So that's what I think is happening. The long-term view of both of these countries, the BRICS nations, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and others, the African nations, the Middle East, you can see Putin engaging with all of these people to promote this multipolar world. This is the real battle. This is the real struggle, the epic battle for the future order of the world. And, you know, I'll, I'll end by adding this. And Russia and, and China are both economically secure. Neither one of them is $31 trillion in debt like the U.S. So because they are more economically secure, they can afford to take a long-term view. The U.S. is now like, we got to hold on to hegemony right now or everything falls apart. And uh, they just don't have that kind of time. And plus— because that's all the United States knows to do. And you know the adage, when your only tool is a hammer, every problem is a nail. So all we know is, is missiles, bullets, and bombs. That's all we have. Well, um, you're exactly right. And I think, you know, the United States and the, the Atlantic, transatlantic alliance is coming to an end. Everybody knows it. Everybody in the rest of the world knows it. And the rest of the world makes up 85% of the people on this planet, the countries in this world, who no longer want to submit to the Western colonial model. Their time is done. It's just a matter of going through these, these death throes hmm. and watching the empire die. Regis Tremblay, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. According to the Sydney Morning Herald, attorneys and journalists illegally searched during visits with Julian Assange, Sue CIA, and Michael Pompeo. U.S.-based lawyers who visited Assange are suing the CIA and former U.S. Secretary of State Pompeo for allegedly covertly monitoring the WikiLeaks founder and his visitors when he was holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a U.S. labor and human rights lawyer, writer, and activist. He's been a peace activist throughout his life and has been deeply involved in the movement for peace and social justice in Colombia, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and other countries in the global south. He has taught international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law since 2012, and he joins us from Moscow, Professor Dan Kovalik. Dan, as always, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Before we get to the Assange story, uh, this story broke earlier today. Parties in Ethiopia conflict agreed to cease hostilities. The parties in the conflict in Ethiopia's northern region of Tigray have agreed to cease hostilities, a dramatic diplomatic breakthrough two years into a war that has killed thousands, displaced millions, and left hundreds of thousands facing famine. Your thoughts, Professor Dan Cavalli. Well, I feel very relieved by that news. It has been a brutal conflict. And, you know, my own perception has been that the U.S., has been ginning up the conflict to try to uh, overthrow the government in Ethiopia. Uh, But in the process, yes, uh, many people have died. There have been a lot of war crimes committed. And so this is great news. I mean, this is great news for Ethiopia. It's great news for all of Africa, in truth. The unfortunate thing is the only people that see it bad news is Tony Blinken and the uh, Biden administration because they were trying to overthrow the Ethiopian government. I agree. I don't think that uh, peace was something they wanted. They wanted this conflict. They've been supporting it covertly. And so, yeah, in this case, peace is not only good. In a way, it's subversive. So my kudos to to the two parties there. As we look at a broader geopolitical landscape. We we look at what's happening in Ukraine and the fact that Ukraine isn't winning there, and that's a U.S.-backed move. We look at the United States being exposed for its involvement in the uh, blowing up of, of the uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline. We look at this shift in the global south. When you look at this peace agreement and the United States involvement in uh, in the war, is this a trend or am I is this am I being too optimistic, uh, too naive to say that that this is a trend and the United States isn't faring well? No, I think there's a reason to be certainly cautiously optimistic. I mean, I do think the trend is uh in favor of independence from the West, from U.S. domination. Uh, we see this trend, as you say, uh, very strongly in the election of Lula in Brazil, in Gustavo Petro in Colombia, 
um, again, in this peace agreement with in Ethiopia, I think the world has decided they've had enough of U.S. hegemony. And I think U.S. hegemony is slowly coming to an end, you know, but but I, I think as Churchill might say, this is not the beginning of the end, but the end of the beginning, right? I, I wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't count the U.S. out yet. Oh no no no! There are too many nukes in. in there are too many nukes in in too many silos. Yes, indeed. But I do think the tra- trajectory is against the United States at this point. Well, let's continue on that trajectory. CIA sued over alleged spying on lawyers, journalists who met with Assange. A group of journalists and lawyers sued the CIA and its former director, Mike Pompeo, over allegations the intelligence agency spied on them when they visited WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange during his stay in Ecuador's embassy in London. I think this is a good uh, turn of events. Your thoughts on it, Dan Kavalik? Yeah, well, it's good they're being sued, uh, and this is not surprising. I mean, the U.S., look, is really trying to torture Julian Assange to death. They they have nothing legally on him, right? They're trying to, to, trying to somehow convict a guy for treason who owes no allegiance to the United States government or flag, right? Um, and frankly, he's done nothing but receive information others have gained and reported on it and shared it with the world. Uh, Many newspapers in the U.S., including the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal, have shared the same information WikiLeaks has gotten. Um, You know, so all the U.S. has is to keep this guy held as long as possible in the worst of conditions and hope he dies in custody, right? And so now Julian Assange's legal team is fighting back. And yes, I do think that's a good thing. The CIA, which declined to comment on the lawsuit, is prohibited from collecting intelligence on U.S. citizens, although several lawmakers have alleged that the agency maintains a secret repository of America's communications data. Talk about the validity of that point as it relates to a lawsuit that would take place if Assange were extradited to the United States, and talk about that in the context of the appeals that Assange's legal team are still waging in London trying to get trying to prevent him from being extradited. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, the CIA has been acting as a rogue agency since it was created in 1948. Um, there were the Frank Senator Frank Church committee hearings in the early 1970s, which exposed a lot of what the CIA was doing. Um, many times, you know, outside the authority, certainly of Congress, sometimes outside the authority of the president. And we're seeing this now in terms of their activity with Julian Assange. Um, now he is not a U.S. citizen, so I think some of the regulations you're talking about may not apply. But at the same time, uh, what is, what are they doing with taxpayer money going after a guy who essentially is a journalist, right? Who's done nothing to threaten the national security of the United States? Uh, I think it's very troubling, and I think we need another Frank Church-like committee 
to expose the CIA's latest crimes and to try to reel it in. If I could just quickly clarify, I realize that Assange isn't an American citizen. I was looking at the actions of the CIA and what they did to other individuals that are tangentially related to this and how those acts might influence the perception here. That, that, that was really what I was what I was driving at. Yeah, I mean, to the extent that the CIA has intercepted communications between any U.S. citizens in Assange, you know, whether they be lawyers or whatnot, obviously that would be illegal. Mm-hmm. And um, we know that Assange has a number of U.S. lawyers and um, advocates. And again, if the CIA is spying on those people, that would be illegal. Mm-hmm. The CIA has no jurisdiction domestically, right? The Correct. FBI has right. jurisdiction, intelligence jurisdiction domestically. The CIA is not supposed to. So to the extent they're keeping tabs on anyone who's an American uh, in connection with Julian Assange or otherwise, that would be completely illegal and it needs to be sanctioned. And stopped. I want to ask you about something else that's going on. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Um, a while back, after the um, the DNC um, server issue arose, the, the at the time the discussion was that someone on the inside who worked in the computer section had downloaded the files and given them the WikiLeaks. A person who worked on the inside. In the computer section named Seth Rich was shot in the back twice in what was then said to be a robbery, although nothing was taken from him. At that time, Julian Assange was interviewed and he brought up Seth Rich in the context of saying our sources take chances and put themselves in difficult positions and blah, blah, blah. And then he mentioned Seth Rich and the guy said and and the interviewer asked him, he says, are you saying Seth Rich was the source? And he said, I'm saying our sources um, put themselves in difficult positions, blah, 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 blah. Well, now we find that the FBI has had Seth Rich's com- uh, computer for the last four years, though they denied it. Um, a, a Freedom of Information Act have, has requested. There was no case. Nobody's been charged to get a copy of it. And the FBI has said to the court, we can't give it up for 66 years. I, I, you're a lawyer. Seems a little suspicious. Your thoughts, Dan? Yeah, no, of course it does. And I did see that news headline. And I think it's very concerning. I mean, all of this Russiagate nonsense um, has been dangerous. It's been based on lies. It has led to this conflict we're seeing right now between ostensibly Ukraine and Russia, though I think at this point it's now between NATO and Russia. And I think we're seeing more cover-ups related to it. And I think the Seth Rich cover-up, and this is a cover-up if you're not going to release the uh, information for decades. Um, I think this is the tip of the spear, as many people have alleged. And a lot of people who allege that were cons- conspiracy theorists or not, and, and whatnot. But I think they were probably onto something here. Black Jenner Report has a piece, The Unbalanced Scales of International Criminal Justice. Uh, The War Crimes Tribunal was an important judicial tool, and I had enough support from President Clinton, Secretary of State Albright, Defense Secretary Cohen, and other officials in Washington to wield it like a battering ram 
in the execution of U.S. and NATO policy. And this was attributable, this quote, to David Sheffer, former U.S. ambassador at large for war crimes in the Clinton administration, um, using the battering ram image while talking about the first international criminal tribunal established at the International Criminal Tribunal in Yugoslavia. Your thoughts on this, Dan Kavalik? Yeah, well, I mean, this these type of international criminal tribunals and, and then the International Criminal Court, which kind of grew out of all those, has been incredibly uh, selective mm -hmm. in their prosecutions. In fact, outside of the former Yugoslavia, which was, again, an inform well, a tribunal uh, created by the Security Council of the UN, um, aside from that one case, all the other prosecutions have been of African leaders, right? Um, the West has been completely uh, immunized from any prosecution by these tribunals, by the International Criminal Court. You know, even the U.S. has sanctioned the ICC for try even thinking about trying to prosecute it. Um, under George Bush, they actually passed a law saying the U.S. could um, send the military to The Hague to prevent Americans from being tried by the International Criminal Court. So, you know, you're seeing an incredible case of selective justice. Um, the only, I think, 11 leaders ever convicted by the International Criminal Court have been African, right? So um, I think given all that, there's very little credibility that the ICC has now because, you know, it is so selective in the justice it meets out that uh, it can't be taken seriously. And we have just about 45 seconds. If I understand it right, the United States is not a signatory to the ICC, but seems to want to use it or reference it or threaten with it when it is perceived to be in the United States' interest. 30 seconds. Well, that's absolutely true. Bill Clinton did everything he could in negotiations to weaken the ICC and did sign the, the, the Rome Statute of the ICC, but did not ratify it. George W. Bush then unsigned the ICC. But as you say, the U.S. wants everyone else to be prosecuted by the ICC. It's incredible hypocrisy. Dan Kovalik, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate your analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Me too. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. 
Jeffrey Sachs has a piece entitled Biden's foreign policy is sinking the congressional Dems and Ukraine. The proxy war between the U.S. and Russia is devastating Ukraine, ironically, in the name of saving Ukraine. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a writer at the polemicist.net and Counterpunch, and he's the author of Will There Be a Nuclear War? Dr. Jim Cavanaugh, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Before we get to the Jeffrey Sachs piece, your piece, Will There Be a Nuclear War? You write, at this point, I put the chances at 50-50. And let me tell you, Jim, I don't like those odds. (laughs) Um, uh, Talk about your piece, please. Well, uh, my point is simply this, that both of these parties, the parties to this conflict are Russia on the one hand and the U.S. NATO with Kiev as their agent on the other hand. And both of these parties now have defined this as a, as a, a war they cannot be allowed to lose. The, the head of NATO said, if Ukraine loses, NATO loses, it can, we, it, this cannot be allowed. Everything that's happened you know, over the past six months didn't have to happen at the beginning. But the Americans and the Europeans and NATO has put itself in a position where our credibility and our future is on the line over this. And Russia has not only not only now do we, uh, uh, you know, they would have negotiated over uh, Donbass, uh, uh, keep Donbass and, and Crimea. But now they got four, four oblasts and four regions that they've had, they've annexed and they've had a referenda to annex. So and they have they cannot afford to lose this. If they lose this to NATO. It will be the beginning of the end of Russia. Russia will start dismembering NATO. So you've got a situation where the, the fundamental question is which of these parties is actually going to accept defeat without losing, using all the weapons they have at their disposal. The United States has always said it will use nuclear weapons in case of battlefield surprises. Uh, and Russia has said, well, we our policy is not to use it unless, our, unless the, the the, the integrity of our state is threatened, but they've now defined it in a way that actually makes it that way. If they're going to, even if they lose one of these oblasts, if they lose Donbass and, and uh, if they lose Lugansk and Donetsk, so there's what they've put themselves in a position where if there's no nuclear war, it's going to be because someone has accepted what is and is cannot be hidden a, a clear defeat. And they've, as the war has progressed, it, they've gotten more and more aggressive about that and more and more intransigent about that. Certainly the United States and the NATO side, they're throwing 181 airborne into Romania five miles from the border. They have American forces in combat in in, in Ukraine. And I just see it's very difficult to back out of this in any way, shape or form. The bottom line is there's a 50-50 chance that it will get to a point where one side is going to lose if they don't lose their nuclear weapons. And in that context, there's a 50-50 chance they'll, they'll use them. And I'll say this. I think the war has taken a decisive turn in that Russia's got a half a million men just about sitting there with a tremendous amount of firepower and Ukraine's um, military and um, uh, 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 infrastructure is collapsing I think this thing has taken a decisive turn against Ukraine. But but I don't want to miss something because, you know, we can talk about that forever because this is important. Biden's for and uh, Professor Jeffrey Sachs wrote this great article. And and in that we're a week away from the midterms. We got to hear what you have to say about it. Biden's foreign policy is sinking the congressional dims and Ukraine. And in light of what we've seen recently, where the dims react 
reacted to people yelling at them in their town halls. And now we're seeing more and more of that with a mealy mouth request for diplomacy backed away from that. And they are getting plastered everywhere for that. This is a great article. Your thoughts on it, Jim Cavanaugh. In fact, let me quickly add, I think uh, Obama was interrupted recently. Oklahoma, yeah. For having started the war they, in Ukraine. Yep, they said he started yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, Jim. With the insurrection in 2014. Yeah, look, the Democrats are being blasted by this. You know, what's, what's strange now, however, is it's very hard to know what uh, uh, is actually motivating voters and people because they don't want to report on things, you know? <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, I... It's just hard for people not to be thinking, why are we spending 65 to 100 billion dollars on Ukraine? You know, what's in it? This is not something, you know, as Obama said when he was president, and we talked about this before, we got we to gotta carefully decide what's, what's, what's the essential problem for us. And Ukraine isn't really. And NATO and the U.S. could have said, you know, we don't really need Ukraine. We, they don't. But they got themselves into this now, and they're not going to back out of it. So the voters and the American people are saying, all of a sudden, there's going to be the deficit and the debt, and we're going to have to cut Social Security and Medicare. But we're going to give an infinite amount of money to Ukraine without one person ever questioning, oh, how are you going to find the money? So this is what's – you know, the, but the voters are in a bad state. The economy, the social economy is in a terrible state, and they see – that their congressional leadership and the Democrats are 100 percent behind this, you know, will spend an infinite amount of money to make war in Ukraine. Now, the Republicans are making a little bit of noises about why should we give a blank check? As McCarthy said, you know, we, we won't give a blank, but they'll give a blank check, too. <laughs> you know, they'll be, if anything, uh, more warmongering, at least as warmongering as the Democrats. So we're in this position where, you know, the, 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 the result of the, elect, the election right now is, I think, going to be to the detriment of the Democrats. But the issue as it's being raised in the election is who's going to be, you know, the, who's the most warmongering of the parties. And the Republicans will get some traction in the election for pretending that they're not. Uh, and uh, I just, this whole situation is, is completely out of hand and it's extremely dangerous. And there's no hope for exit from it from the American electoral system. Two things in Jeffrey Sachs' first paragraph. Biden believes that America's global reputation is at stake in Ukraine. The United States started that fight. He then writes, the Ukraine war combined with the administration's disruptions of economic relations with China. The United States started that fight with China. And its unwillingness to negotiate, its unwillingness to sit down and talk with China as an equal— these are fights the United States is starting. And so to your point about the media not reporting on these things, people are incredibly, terribly confused. As that heckler said to Barack Obama, you started this in 2014 when you sent Victoria Newland in there with her bag of cookies to foment the, the Maidan coup. You know, I, for since 2000, I wrote a couple of very long articles about Ukraine in 2014, where I was just learning about it myself, and I was astounded at what was happening, and the level of fascist ideology that was involved in it, fascist organization. And you know, and, and when I was articles I wrote since then about Antifa and fascist adjacent people in the United States, I would always say, if Antifa is serious about anti-fascism, they better be 
going to the, the every speech that Joe Biden and, and Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and Victoria Nuland get because they're the ones who put fascism up into Europe into European government again. And uh, so this is so. On the one hand, Obama was you know his foreign policy was to bring the fascists into Ukraine in a unconstitutional insurrection to depose the democratically elected leader. But on the other hand, as I said. Obama also said, you know, we've got to be careful about whether we're going to go to war there because you know, we've got to measure our, our, our interests versus Russia's in that case. And as I said at the beginning of this, you know, and up until, you know, certainly late 2021, the Americans could have said, you know, we're not going to – we don't have – Ukraine isn't a part of NATO officially. And, you know, NATO can exist and the U.S. can have plenty of power in the world without – having Ukraine as its puppet state, but they didn't want to do that. And they can exist and have plenty of power in the world without, you know, creating a provocation with China over Taiwan, but they don't seem to want to do that. So what we're witnessing, I think, is the United States, it's, it's acting out of fear that we can't lose anything. Because if we lose every, anything, everything will go. And that's the game they're playing. That, they have put themselves in that game at a point in history, which I think that, where they think they didn't have to. But they're doing it. They're not backing away from it. It's extremely dangerous. I, I, I've never seen anything like it. The analogy I would use to what you talked about, Obama in Ukraine, is going out to California right now and starting a campfire. <laughs> That's not a good idea because you're going to wind up setting the whole damn forest on fire. Yeah. Well, and you just say about the media, I mean, people are persuaded that the Russians are losing. I mean, you know, that's just ridiculous. And the reason they're persuaded of that is because they want them to be persuaded of that because only the losing side is the one who's going to use those nuclear weapons in order to prevent themselves from losing, right? And they need the people, if the United States decides to use nuclear weapons, it's going to be not because we, we want to prop up Ukraine because it, it, it's, we want to prop up American hegemony in the world and we want to prop up Ukraine as our, our spearhead against Russia. No, but because we're going to stop Russia from doing what it's doing or wants to do, has decided to do already in some bizarre way, to use nuclear weapons. So this is a game, and, and all of these elements of it, right, the, the Ukraine war started on February 24th. No, the Ukraine war started in 2014-15, and when for eight years during which Donbass has been attacked relentlessly and still is being attacked. So, you know, again, the narrative has been presented and it's being enforced absolutely without... Uh, without uh, any uh, allowance for dissent. You know, and that's what happened to the uh, paltry progressive Democrats who tried to um, make a, a noise, uh, the softest noise of, of criticism. But, you know, this is what we have now. So people have a bizarre anti-factual notion of what is actually happening in this, in this theater of war in Ukraine and what the likely stakes are. You know, but here's the thing. If Ukraine is losing, OK, the U.S. can do whatever or somebody can try to save them. But if Ukraine collapses, there's first of all, you can't say, OK, they've collapsed. Therefore, Russia's attacking them with nukes after they are collapsed. There's nothing to defend. That's the thing about it, I think. I see collapse and collapse changes it because you can't come in there and say we're saving. Well, the infrastructure's collapsed. The politics have collapsed. The military's collapsed. So we're going to go there in there and save it. There's then you're in a th you're in a position where you've got refugees flowing out of the country. You've got hungry people and you have a humanitarian disaster going on. 
it makes it difficult to argue, okay, we got to go in there and fight because the Ukrainians aren't even, there's nothing left to fight with or for. What do you think? Uh, um, Got about a minute, minute and a half. Yeah, well, you know, the Russians are going to launch a huge offensive with the 300,000 more men they've mobilized, and it's going to be a huge offensive. And this is what the Americans worry about. So they, the American, you're right, they have, to, they have to act before there's a collapse, okay? And again, to do that, they have to have a scenario, create a narrative whereby the Russians have or are about to use nuclear weapons. <laughs> and therefore, we have to come in, not to save Ukraine, you know, which is collapsing, but to save Ukraine, which is winning, and would only, it's only losing because Russia's going to use nuclear weapons, <laughs> or, and the nuclear weapon, Russia's going to create a nuclear threat to the world. So there, it is a case that, you know, if Russia, Russian offensive comes in and it's successful very quickly, that will help allay the, the, the possibility of nuclear war. But I don't know. <laughs> 50-50 is what I say. Well, again, as uh, we mentioned at the top, you put the chances at 50-50, and I don't like those odds. I don't even hear the so-called analysts, going back to the point about what the media is doing, I don't hear the so-called analysts even speaking in those horrific contexts. They're talking about, oh, let's, let's think about how we might win a nuclear war, and let's think of what really will happen if there's a nuclear attack. And I, you know, I'm convinced the Americans have always convinced themselves. It's been relatively true over a long period of time. Nobody's going to attack us. We have all the nuclear weapons, and we're going to be. There, nobody wants a nuclear war, and therefore we can threaten and bluff our way out of everything and have escalation dominance. That has been true. It's just not true anymore, you know. And and they're counting on the media uh, controlling the narrative. Look, if people will believe that the America that Russia uh, blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. They're going to believe if there's a false flag nuclear, nuclear explosion or a dirty bomb explosion that it was Russia who did it. They're convinced that they can convince people of anything, which is largely true, the, the large, larger public, for enough time anyway to get things going. Mm-hmm. And the American people are just not scared enough of war. Dr. Jim Cavanaugh, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. North Korea fires 23 missiles, prompting air raid alert in South Korea. Air raid sirens have sounded on a South Korean island, and residents evacuated to underground shelters after North Korea fired more than 20 missiles, at least one of them in its direction and landing near the rival's tense sea border. For insight into this and other issues, let's turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher, K.J. No. As always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So air raid sirens sounded on a South Korean island and residents evacuated underground shelters after North Korea fired more than 20 missiles earlier today, at least one of them in its direction and landing near the rival's tense sea border. Uh, South Korea, it's reported, quickly responded by launching its own missiles in the same border area. That doesn't sound very welcoming or that doesn't sound really good to me, KJ. No. Give us some insight, please. 
Well, this is once again a North Korean response to U.S. and Korean, South Korean military drills, the massive, uh, uh, you know, sorties that the South Korean military, the South Korean uh, Air Force is doing with the uh, U.S. Because the North Koreans see this as an imminent threat. They see this, they have no way of distinguishing whether it is a real decapitation attack or whether it's just uh, threat mongering and, you know, uh, trying to trigger North Korea's PTSD. So their response is, you know, we're going to fire some missiles. Maybe that will make you stand up and pay attention. These are pretty interesting. They fired 23 missiles, uh, and one of them fell close to an island called Ullungdo, about 100, um, 100 miles away from Ullungdo, you know, which is one of the Korean islands. Uh, and then uh, they also fired some of these uh, missiles uh, south of the northern limit line. The northern limit line is the sea boundary between North Korea and South Korea. On Along the um, western coast, it abruptly moves upwards. So North Korea essentially ignores it and says that, you know, if the DMZ were to continue on a seaward line, it would slope downward. Why is the northern limit line suddenly sloping upwards uh, when it comes to the, to the ocean? So they ignore it. But the fact that it also fell past south of the northern limit line is also uh, a signal to the Koreans, and they'll, they'll make a big deal of it, too. Well, the other thing, the thing that I always think of when I see, you know, the the U.S., um, the Western media, you know, kind of go up in arms about North Korea firing a missile is just a, a, a month or so ago, there were a bu- there was a bunch of um, news about the U.S. firing and test firing some ICBMs saying that it was a good thing, that it would deter our adversaries, saying, that, and, and we're doing, deca- uh, practicing decapitation strikes around North Korea's airspace. So when we... We menace them when we fire potential nuclear weapons into the air testing. It's a good thing because we do it. And when they do it in response to our actions, we condemn it as a provocation. Yes, uh, it's kind of extraordinary, isn't it? You provoke a response and then you remove the context. You only give us the reaction shot and you talk about, you know, how threatening they are. Well, I mean, there's an action and there's a reaction and there's a plan. The plan is uh, the U.S. has this plan, Op Plan 5015, which is about decapitating and taking down North Korea's leadership and commanding control, which it would most likely do with massive air sorties as they're rehearsing currently. And South Korea has its own Korea massive punishment and retaliation uh, plan, <laughs> which is uh, even worse than it sounds, essentially, once again, you know, massive attacks on North Korea. Uh, and uh, all of these are interconnected. So North Korea, they look at the game plan and they look at the actions being taken and they're saying, oops, no, not okay. And they're firing missiles, you know, to express their resistance, their displeasure, and also their readiness to take on the North Koreans and the South Koreans. That said, North Korea, you know, is not a threat to any of the countries. You know, it has a minuscule, minuscule military budget. Its military budget is probably 50% of the NYPD. Uh, and mm. for the U.S. to to constantly claim that North Korea is threatening South Korea is absolutely absurd. The only thing it has is it has a deterrent capacity. And the U.S. has been using North Korea as a stalking horse to attack or to contain China since at least 1949. And this whole missile barrage comes 
as the world's attention was focused on South Korea following a weekend Halloween tragedy that saw more than 150 people killed in a crowd surge in Seoul in what the country's in what was the country's largest disaster in years. This I know, uh, KJ, is very significant to you. And if you could please explain why. Well, I mean, the first thing it is a massive death toll, uh, over 150, we think 154 right now, but there could be more people dying, <clears throat> was completely unnecessary. The government refused to do even basic crowd control or even to shut down the street. This had the effect of forcing hundreds of thousands of partygoers celebrating Halloween in Itaewon. This is the kind of entertainment and nightclub district, uh, traditionally a foreigner expat district. Hundreds of thousands of people flocked to this area. There was no crowd control, uh, only 153, 137 police doing vice squad. And they essentially crowded into these steep alleyways uh, in this area. And then, uh, you know, there was uh, somebody fell or they were pushed. But this resulted in a crowd crush situation where people were pancaked on top of each other and then they died from asphyxiation. Now, uh, every time you have a right-wing government in South Korea, you get something like this happening. That is to say, Hakuna, when she was the right-wing, uh, you know, quizzling um, uh, president of South Korea, she had this ferry accident in which 304 children were drowned to death unnecessarily. Uh, prior to that, uh, started under the Notewu right-wing military dictatorship, uh, there was a department store which pancaked on itself, you know, in, in the middle of the day and had 1,500 casualties. 500 uh, of whom, you know, died. And this is a recurrent pattern with right-wing uh, neo-fascist Korean government is that they essentially abdicate their duties towards their citizens in terms of safety and health and well-being. Uh, in this situation, Yoon Seok-yeol, he placed most of the top ministry officials as he put in prosecutors who were his friends. Uh, where he was a prosecutor himself, the chief prosecutor. He claimed that he would create a republic of prosecutors. He filled the top leadership with prosecutors. And of course, prosecutors know how to prosecute, but they know nothing about governance or running a safe and healthy country. And this is the predictable predictable result. And do you think this is something, I mean, the 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 president of um, uh, President Yoon in South Korea has, you know, ever since he's gotten in, his um, approval rating has been heading on a downward trend. Uh, do you think this is the kind of thing that um, could precipitate his downfall in one manner or another? Well, it could, because, you know, to date, there have been 12 massive demonstrations. Most recently, the 11th, uh, that was about a week ago. That saw somewhere between half, um, uh, half a million uh, people uh, hitting the streets, asking for his resignation. They want him to leave. They want his resignation. Right now, he's trying to spin as hard as he can, trying to put the blame on everybody else, saying that this could not have been foreseen. There was nothing which could have been done to prevent it. But I think once the period of mourning is over, I think Koreans will hit the streets hard. And they will, uh, I think they will ask 
for the resignation of the entire UN administration. Of course, the UN administration is going to use crowd control as a way of preventing uh, people from going out in the streets, uh, finally doing what they should have done, you know, uh, uh, on, on, on Saturday and Friday of last week. There is another piece, U.S. raging unilateral economic and tech war to halt China's rise. The Biden administration's aggressive sanctions aim to kneecap China's tech sector. A former Pentagon official acknowledged it is a disproportionate and unilateral attack, a form of economic containment. Your thoughts, KJ, no. Yeah, it's economic war. I mean, the idea is that you wage war on China's tech sector. Tech is what develops the economy. And by kneecapping China's uh, technological sector, in particular with you know high-level semiconductors, <clears throat> this is a total ban. Not only is China not allowed to import uh, advanced semiconductors, they cannot import the machines to build them. They cannot bring in the software to design them. They cannot get the uh, etching machines. Uh, they cannot uh, get anything that has any relationship to any U.S. technology that is somehow implicated uh, in in this entire ecosystem. And and to top it off, any uh, uh, people who are working for or with China uh, have to make a choice. They, they're either with the U.S. or against them, but immediately they have to stop working for, for China or else they have to, you know, forego their U.S. citizenship or or. Uh, permanent, permanent resident status. So this is kind of extraordinary. These measures are extraordinary. And there's no way the Chinese cannot see them as a literal declaration of war. Uh, it's very, very dangerous. And according to, um, you know, the publisher of the Asia Times, he says that within 20 years, the United States will be licking the mud off of China's boots because it will have completely kneecapped itself, destroyed its own uh, IT and semiconductor industry, while China will simply recover. It'll just take a few years. Very short sighted. I think what, what what happens, we look at what happened in Russia. 2014, the U.S. puts massive sanctions on Russia and says, OK, that's it. We're going to take Russia out. We're done. And what they forced Russia to do was increase that Russia now has does have a semiconductor in- industry, but they forced Russia to learn how to make their own stuff, so much so that now they are, to some extent, no country is, to some extent, sanctions proof, and they're Put, and, and let me add this. And in many areas, they've passed the U.S. And China's definitely in the passing lane. And they're going to get to a point where China's going to be far ahead of them in technology. And China's going to say, oh, no, 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 we're not sharing any of this stuff with you. Yes, absolutely. You're absolutely correct. Now, China is in the passing lane. It will be there will be a temporary setback. But the key thing that will determine who gets ahead is education. China graduates seven times the engineers of the United States. And more than that, its entire leadership, its entire top leadership is engineers and scientists. We have failed businessmen and aggressive lawyers. That's not going to work. We see where this is going. And there's quite a bit of history to demonstrate every time the United States attempts acts like these, the United States winds up looking at China passing to the left, 5G technology is, to me, is the perfect example of, and if, if I remember this correctly, China reached out to the United States 10 or 15 years ago and said, work with us on this technology. And the United States said no. 
And then when China decides that the time has come, it starts to release the technology and employ the technology uh, in other countries. All of a sudden, the United States cries foul because now there's 5G technology and the United States can barely keep up with fast 4G. Exactly. And 5G is the wave of the future. It's what allows, for example, automation in factories. You can have completely autonomous factories or autonomous vehicles. All of this is dependent on 5G. The Internet of Things is based on 5G. Exactly. And 6G, which is what China is doing. Mm -hmm. And so and it's also the strategic backbone of the U.S. surveillance system, which is why they tried to kick Huawei out, because it felt they felt like, oh, you know, we won't be able to keep tabs on everything in this, you know, global panopticon that we're trying to create. That was very foolish. Now, China's pulling ahead. The U.S. has no, and Europe has no good substitute for Huawei and their 5G and 6G work. And so, once again, shooting ourselves in the foot. This is predictable, and it's repetitious, and it's tiresome. KJ No, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Orinoco Tribune has a piece entitled Haiti's La Saline Massacre Revisited. U.S. Disinformation Campaign Provides Pretext as U.N. Military Intervention Looms. As a popular uprising engulfs Haiti and threatens to topple the U.S.-backed regime of de facto Prime Minister Ariel Henry, Washington is seeking to deploy a military force to target the figure at the storm's center, Jimmy Cherizere, nicknamed Barbecue. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. She's an associate professor of Black Studies and Anthropology at the University of California, Los Angeles, a member of the Black Alliance for Peace and editor of the Black Agenda Review segment of the Black Agenda Report, Dr. Jamima Pierre. As always, Dr. Pierre, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Thank you. So while the masses of protesters demand Henri's resignation and announce his request for U.S. intervention, it's the G9's blockade of the terminal that presents the most severe threat to Henri's continued grip on the country. When we look at the Biden plan to send a force in, and we also know now that there's discussion about reconstituting what was known then as Camp X-Ray at Guantanamo Bay, where Haitians were were detained in basically dog pens. Uh, this is going south fast. Yes, definitely. I, you know, the U.S. created this mess in Haiti. They've been upholding, they're trying to uphold their puppets over and over again. They did it with Martelly, they did it with Jovenel Moise, and now they're doing it with Henri. And what's coming, you know, this time, you know, like a lot of Haitians say, 2022 is not 2004. People are much more um, aware and they know how to fight back. And so I do think part of this is, it is the crumbling of the U.S. narrative, even though 
we have to be wary. Um, um, we have to be wary of U.S. imperialism because they are relentless. And so I have to, um, you know, the Sherry Ziet part is is important to think about because I don't know if your audience knows this, but, you know, I've been saying this for a long time. The U.S. likes to find one person to demonize, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. They did it, you know, bin Laden was the bad guy, was the next Hitler. You know, Saddam Hussein was the Hitler. Now Putin is the Hitler. And so Sherry Ziet is now the new Hitler that, that's really creating the PR for the U.S. to basically go in there, send the military force to, to support its, um, its puppet. And, and so I, I, I think this article is important because, you know, I'm not one to say that Chelizier or Barbecue is a revolutionary, but I also know how U.S. propaganda works. And I also know that, you know, um, demonizing one lone person always works for the U.S. public, even though we know that it's ridiculous that one lone person can be responsible for the entire, um, for the problem of, of, of Haiti or any other country for that matter. And so, so, so yeah, so I think the article is very good in pointing out that this is a PR game, but also it's a PR game to go in and send a, a non-UN military force um, to, to protect their, their puppet in Haiti. Well, the other part of this that is so egregious is that the U.S. pretends that Haiti's asking for it. And that's the other part of the propaganda that they push on the American people to say, well, the Haitian leadership, as if the people chose the so-called Haitian leadership. Well, it's not us. I mean, if it was up to us, we wouldn't go in. But, you know, the Haitian leadership's begging us to come in and help us out. So we have no choice. And I think that's the really nefarious part of what they're doing. Right. And I I do think there is something to be said about you know, the fact that even though so many of us have gone on, so many Haitians have said it's the, this is an illegitimate government. Even all the letters of all the letters of support against, you know, this invasion, everyone has said that. But the, the media still re, um, uh, keep saying, you know, they keep saying that the Haitian government has asked for this support. And, you know, Ariel Henry was imposed by the core group, by the Biden administration and the U.N., and so he has no legitimacy and he has no reason to, you know, he has no mandate to call on outsiders to come kill Haitians. And so we have to know this. And we also have to really be careful about the propaganda. One of the things I think that's important in this article is the fact that, you know, the RNDDH, the, 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 the low lawyers group that, um, that really um, RNDDH that, that put out the report in La Saline is funded by the National for <laughs> Endowment for Democracy, which is a CIA front, right, that, that we know. In fact, the U.S. government and the National Endowment for Democracy fund quite a number of organizations in Haiti. Um, going back to early 2000, that, was, that were actually behind um, the, 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 the protest against Aristide. And so these you know, you, you should always take what these organizations say with a grain of salt because they will do what needs to be done for um, um, for U.S. For, for propaganda. These same groups are the same ones that really demonize Aristide. And the people don't even remember right after the coup d'etat in 1991, they created the, the Western press basically turned him into, you know, they said he was this almost a cannibal. You know, he was behind gang violence. He was the one funding the gangs and so on and so forth. So we can see all of this U.S. propaganda, they're trying to set up this case for a foreign intervention. And there's also the racism factor, right? Like, you know, of course, everybody believes that there are gangs in Haiti, that these these boys are going around killing each other. Cause, and then the word gang itself is so much a racialized term. And that so it, it's working on the, the feelings of, of, you know, Westerners who already have very crazy um, beliefs about black people and black men in particular.
And to that point, there's a, a paragraph here in this Orinoco Tribune piece. Haiti is plagued by criminal armed groups like the 400 Mowozo and the Five Seconds Gang, all arrayed against the FRG9 in the GPEP Confederation, which is connected to powerful oligarchs with close ties to the U.S. Haitians have taken note that Cherize and Anti-crime crusader is the only figure targeted by the resolution, uh, that's by the U.S., which claims that he has engaged in acts that threaten the peace, security, and stability of Haiti and that the fuel blockade has directly contributed to the economic paralysis and humanitarian crisis in Haiti. Can you kind of deconstruct uh, that paragraph? Yeah, exactly. And and that's the other part, right? And so you focus on Cherizier, who's never left his little neighborhood um, in, in Haiti, who doesn't have a U.S. passport, who wouldn't get a U.S. visa if he tried. So you think you're putting sanctions on him, while at the same time you block, you don't, you let all the oligarchs who own actually the ports, right? Now you notice that there was no sanction um, against the, the people who own the ports that are allowing all these you know, um, uh, ex- uh, machine guns into the country, right? So, so you notice the only time that they're getting upset at the thing is is when Sherry Zia and his group blocks, you know, the 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 oil depot of one of these oligarchs, and so it becomes a. So the problem is not the problem is not necessarily what's happening to Haitians that have been you know suffering through you know violence and and and, and indigna- indignation, especially these arms. It's about when 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 this one port for gas gets stuck and the oligarchs are not making the money that they need to be making. And so we see the hypocrisy of this. And it's even more uh, terrible because the UN, you know, the UN uh, uh, Gutierrez, the secretary general of the UN, is is really acting almost to me like uh, Luis Almagro of the OAS, like as, as, you know, little peons of the U.S. And it's just terrible to me that the UN would, you know, chief would be falling or, you know, articulating these things when, when you know, hate, the Haiti, the so-called gang problem in Haiti is actually not as bad as Turk and Caicos. I don't know if you guys know, for example, just mm-hmm. two weeks ago, Turk and, Turk and Caicos closed down everything <laughs> because they have, like, major gang violence. But where is their meeting at the U.N. Security Council asking for a rapid deployment force uh, of, 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 of foreigners to go in and shoot people? In fact, there was a there was a um, just about two weeks ago or three weeks ago, there was a gentleman from Maryland who was there on vacation who was shot uh, and was killed. A gang attacked a tour group and and he was shot in Turks and Caicos. Exactly. The, the country is closed down. The British, the, the, the U.S., they're all there with military trying to help against this gang. You don't hear that at all. Yesterday, there were two gangs that had a, a shootout in Jamaica. I want to send force to Haiti. And so you see then what's going on here is that you don't hear anything about Turks and Caicos. You don't hear anything even about Jamaica or even the, the, the major gang and drug cartel problem in Mexico. But Haiti becomes a basket case. And to me, it just goes to show you that there's something much more sinister behind the push to get this and especially non-UN military force to Haiti to uphold this puppet government that they have doing all their dirty bidding, but also to protect the, the, the oligarchy. In fact, just really quickly, I said Maryland, actually Northern Virginia. Ken Carter, a prominent racial justice leader in Northern Virginia, was one of three people killed uh, on the 2nd of, on the 5th of October while 
on vacation in Turks and Caicos amid a string of violent attacks that have shaken the British territory. Um, you know, uh, uh, we definitely wanted to hit uh, this other article, a Black Agenda Report article that I think it's important in the in light of uh, what's just happened in Brazil and everybody's celebrating. However, there are some questions. This uh, There's an article, The Brazilian Army in Haiti, Foreign Intervention and Domestic Politics. It gives us some apprehension. Your thoughts, Dr. Pierre? Definitely. You know, I've written about this um, before. Um, I, I, you know, back in 2011, I wrote an article called um, Brazil's Haitian Training Ground, um, where the, the reality is that under Lula, um, right after the 2004 coup d'etat, I did not realize he was the one that actually pushed to have this UN, um, this UN force take over from the U.S. military force that was there after the coup d'etat. So after the coup d'etat in 2004 that removed um, Haitian President um, Aristide, from Haiti, the U.S. and Canada and France had troops there, thousands of troops, U.S. US sent a, a, a stabilizing mission. And then by June 1st, they passed this, um, they had the U.N. stabilizing mission, Chapter 7, come into Haiti. I did not realize, I mean, I knew Haiti, I knew Brazil led this mission, but I did not realize that they actually pushed for it because they wanted to use Haiti as a training ground for Brazil um, to have more um, power in the region, but also internationally. Apparently, George W. Bush had promised Lula uh, promised Lula that Brazil would get a seat in the UN Security Council for his job um, in, 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 in this minister uh, situation. And then you realize that what happens is Brazil led this from 2004 um, to 2019. Um, in 2006, they had a major massacre in one of the poor areas in, in Port-au-Prince that killed uh, a few hundred people, including little children. There's, you know, the, the, the rape and, and cholera, you know, from the U.N. mission. And so it's really terrible to see that. And, I, and you know, uh, Lula has never apologized for this or acknowledged this, even though within the left, the PT party of Lula's party, people were very upset with him. But he followed through and he did that. And Dilma Rousseff also followed through and kept the troops there. But these same troops went back and are now, you know, they were the ones that terrorized the favelas, the black populations in the favelas. And then some of the leaders of the troops that end up being top military officials in Bolsonaro's government. So you see then Haiti becomes this, you know, this, this training ground for all these um, countries that are trying to create their international bona fides. And Mexico now is the new, is the new, um, um, per, new country playing AMLO, playing a big role in this resolution to bring military force into Haiti. So, you know, this takes me back to this, uh, you know, my article, The Leftism of the Americas Collapses the, the Door of Haitian Sovereignty. I'm just like, everybody's exciting that Lula supposedly, you know, defeated fascism. Mm -hmm. But we always forget that the left is, you know, the left is, he's not far left, he's centrist, you know. And we have to remember, we have to make sure that what he did in 2004, he doesn't do, you know, in 2024. I saw a piece today, is Lula Brazil's Joe Biden? which is an interesting question. And maybe we'll talk with you about that another time. Yes. And that was my first, that was my first thought. I, you know, the way that people were so excited that Joe Biden beat Trump because they think, you know, Trump is the worst thing that ever happened to the U S and I'm just like, there's a whole long history of white supremacists running the U S. And so, and so this is, I think the same situation. Um, and, and they forget all the stuff that Lula did to sell out Brazil uh, as a PT, you know, as, as president. So, I, I do think there's something to be said about this article, and we'll wait and see what he does. But I think it's, we, what's interesting is the fact that Joe Biden was one of the first people to call and congratulate him mm -hmm. and to say that the Brazilian elections were free and fair. 
that always should give us pause because what are they expecting from from Lula? Dr. Jamima Pierre, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thanks so much for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a great piece in Consortium News, the about-face by U.S. lawmakers pursuing diplomacy to end the war in Ukraine is not a radical concept, writes Marjorie Cohn. Indeed, international law requires it. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. She's the professor of law emerita at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law, a former president of the National Lawyers Guild and author of this piece, Professor Marjorie Cohn. As always, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So you write on October 24th, 30 members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus signed a letter to Biden calling for direct talks with Russia to end the war in Ukraine. But the outcry following its publication, mainly from other Democrats, was so intense that Representative uh, Pramila Jayapal, chair of the caucus, retracted the letter on October 25th. Professor Cohn, speak to that. Also, in the context of the stereotype of Republicans being the hawks and the Democrats being the doves. Well, the letter, which was very milquetoast, urged Biden to make vigorous diplomatic efforts in support of a negotiated settlement and ceasefire, and it raised the possibility of incentives to end the hostilities, including some form of relief from sanctions. Um, But what happened was that there was a Washington Post article that characterized that letter as urging President Biden to dramatically shift his strategy on the Ukraine war and pursue direct direct negotiations with Russia, the first time prominent members of his own party have pushed him to change his approach. And so the Democratic Congress members who signed the letter, I guess they had signed it over the summer, but they were waiting to collect a critical mass of signatures, I guess up to 30, and they finally did, so they released the letter in October. Um, they said, well, we signed it several months ago, and they don't want to be tarred with the same brush as Republicans calling for a halt to U.S. military aid to Ukraine. Um, the U.S. Has, is... Um, funding Ukraine's war um, with Russia to the tune of some $60 billion. At least that's what's been allocated. And yet there's, there's almost no pushback at all from the Democrats. And there is some from the Republicans, although not all Republicans. Um, but when Jayapal um, wrote a statement retracting the letter, she said that our message is being conflated by some as being equivalent to the recent statement by Republican leader McCarthy threatening an end to aid to Ukraine if Republicans take over. And the proximity of those statements, the 
Republic, McCarthy's statements and um, this letter from the uh, so-called progressives in Congress um, caused, created, Jayapal said, the unfortunate appearance that Democrats who have strongly and unanimously supported and voted for every package of strategic military, strategic, and economic assistance to the Ukrainian people are somehow aligned with Republicans who seek to pull the plug on American support for President Zelensky and the Ukrainian forces. Um, The bottom line is that Putin has actually expressed interest in a direct dialogue between Russia and Ukraine. The White House said as recently as October 26th, um, there are no current possibilities for negotiations. And yet, if they don't sit down and negotiate, then more people are going to be killed. Sixty Over 6,300 civilians have been killed, 402 children, um, almost 1,000 people injured. And that says nothing. Um, well, it, it doesn't say nothing, but that doesn't include the global impact of this war on the global economy, inflation recession, gas prices, food shortages, etc. Um, so they need to sit down and talk. And the UN Charter says very clearly that parties to a dispute must negotiate, mediate, arbitrate, uh, you know, pursue peaceful means. And yet um, NATO and the U.S., um, have really resisted negotiations and talking to Russia. And the, the, I haven't even mentioned the nuclear threat. Um, we're talking – now, Putin says he doesn't intend to use nuclear weapons. He said that on October 27th. He said there's no point in that, neither political nor military. Um, who knows if that position could change? And meanwhile, um, Biden, who warned that Russia's invasion of Ukraine increased the risk of Armageddon, um, just released the U.S. 2022 Nuclear Posture Review, which allows the first use of nuclear weapons, um, not even being used defensively or, or et cetera, but that violates international law. So, you know, we're, we're talking about two nuclear-armed powers um, that are unpredictable, and I just read a report, I don't know how accurate it is, that um, there are, uh, I think it said nuclear submarines, U.S. nuclear submarines that are moving toward the area. Now, I don't want to, you know, that, that may not be the case, but, um, you know, who knows what could happen here. And meanwhile, people are, are being killed, um, you know, war crimes are being committed, and uh, it and it's it's it needs to end. And so um, by issuing this very mild letter with it, it was not a pro putin letter by any means this letter from the 30 uh, congressional progressive democrats and i use progressive you know advisedly in this context mm-hmm. um, that letter referred to russia's war of aggression its outrageous and illegal invasion of ukraine ukraine's right of self defense as an independent sovereign and democratic state so this is not a pro putin letter and and yet um because of the pushback, they withdrew the letter, which uh, is is really just, uh, you know, beyond the pall. Wilmer and I both um, on many occasions interviewed uh, John Conyers, and he was, you know, started the Out of Iraq Caucus, the Out of Afghanistan Caucus. In fact, him and uh, I believe it was Ted Yoho, they're the ones who pushed through the um, legislation in 2018 that stopped the arming of the Azov Battalion because they're Nazis and white supremacists. There was a a significant anti-war caucus and movement 
in the Congress. What do you think happened? Where are they now? Well, there there was, um, and of course, it took years um, to actually wind down U.S. forces from the Iraq War and the occupation, really, which which persisted for you know at least a couple of decades, um, and the same with Afghanistan, which was also an illegal war, by the way. Both of them violated the UN Charter, both Iraq and Afghanistan, and mindful of the background and, you know, Russia feel, feeling threatened by NATO and, you know, the broken promises and the, the proposed treaties that Russia um, sent to the U.S. and NATO in December were, were there, you know, to for a peaceful resolution, there was no, uh, no response. Um, the uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine does violate the U.N. Charter. It's a war of aggression. Um, and, you know, and, and that, that is uncontested among uh, international law experts. Um, that said, and, and it certainly could have been avoided, I think, clearly it could have been avoided if NATO, led by the U.S., had taken Russia's overtures, peace overtures, seriously, particularly with these two treaties. Um, but that said, there are war crimes being committed, uh, probably by both sides, and uh, and so it, it has to stop. And the the I think um, there has been a problem for a long time, and I remember what you're talking about with John Conyers, um, but there's been a problem for a long time that, that every year when there is a military budget, and I don't want to say defense budget, because it used to be <laughs> called the Department of War. Now it's called the Department of Defense, which is, you know, to soften it, it's really Department of War. Um, there's almost no pushback from anyone in Congress, very few people in Congress, to these astronomical military budgets. Um, and then, of course, there's no money for infrastructure and education and health care, etc. Um, so, I, you know, I don't think, I mean, I, this, is, this is not just uh, a problem with the Republicans or the Democrats. I think, by and large, and there are, of course, exceptions, but by and large, um, you see members of Congress... Uh, finding it very difficult to say no to appropriating billions and billions of dollars for the military, even appropriating money for things the Pentagon hasn't even asked for, um, weapons that they don't even need. And, of course, you know who's getting fat, uh, the defense contractors. Um, but, you know, this it's they are terrified of being painted, um, you know, anti-military or, you know, soft on defense. And uh, it's just gotten out of hand. And with the nuclear weapons, of course, the, the threat is even more intense. You have a part in, in your piece. You say, moreover, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Admiral Mike Mullen, has advocated the use of diplomacy in this war, stating that Secretary of State Blinken and other diplomats need to, quote, figure out a way to get both Zelensky and Putin to the table, end quote. Well, that solution isn't that hard to figure out. United States, get out of the way. Stop telling Zelensky that he can't talk to Putin and we can get this thing wrapped up. Amen to that. Amen. Um, it, it is it, it really is a no brainer. Putin has said he wants to talk to Zelensky. And if you know, the U.S. and NATO are pulling the strings um, in, you know, in, in conjunction with Zelensky and they need to sit down and negotiate 
and really come up with a peaceful solution. Now, it's not going to be easy. There are some really, really, um, you know, sticky issues here to negotiate, but that's always the case when there's a war. Uh, and, uh, and even Barack Obama, uh, you know, no, uh, you know, who is one of the biggest war hawks, um, says that he is very concerned that lines of communication between the White House and the Kremlin are probably as weak as they have been in a very long time. Um, and so diplomacy is really what uh, should be should be pursued. Um, 5,000 people signed a petition uh, circulated by Code Pink. It was addressed to Biden. It was addressed to the NATO commander and the EU commissioner. Um, and it said, we urge you to support an immediate ceasefire and negotiated peace in Ukraine. Uh, Russia and Ukraine can negotiate an end to this disastrous war, provided the U.S. and NATO do not torpedo the negotiations with promises of more and more weapons and talk of weakening Russia for regime change. I mean, Biden has made some statements indicating that he wants regime change. Mm -hmm. uh, does understandably does not take kindly to that. And of course, Biden tried to walk it back. Um, but there needs to be negotiation. But the this is a ceasefire, an immediate ceasefire that mm -hmm. has to be negotiated between Russia and Ukraine. If the U.S. wants to get involved in those negotiations in a positive way, that's fine. But stymying negotiations. Professor Marjorie Cohn, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. Great piece, and we look forward to having you back. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 